You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Chapter 1, Born Enough. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Brandon Odoms. When a girl is born, a universe of possibilities is born with her. When a young black girl is born, she is born with the promise of a better future. Her life represents new hope for breaking generational chains. And it is because of the struggles of strong women who came before her that she is born with the potential to dream beyond anything they ever did. We are all born with a sense of possibility and limitlessness. This is before the labels are placed upon us, those of social stratifications, race, gender, sexuality, and status that start to shape our idea of who we are and that often corrode the dreams of what we can become. We are also born with a certain indestructibility that can withstand every one of those tests, if only we ever recognized it. And it is the power of our own possibilities that keeps us fighting to get back to who we were born to be. It was the early 1990s in our small Northern California town where thick white blankets of fog sometimes covered our entire peninsula. And beneath that blanket, Global history was being made just miles away. But little girls like us had little to do with the happenings in Silicon Valley, a place that sounded more like a ride at Disneyland than the hotbed of digital innovation it was becoming. The World Wide Web had just been invented, and Nokia was about to debut the first smartphone, which flipped open and was as big as our forearms. Dial-up internet and AOL Instant Messenger hadn't hit our households just yet. Little did we know, we were in the final days of life before the internet, when imagination still roamed freely in backyards across America, and gigapets were the only tiny mobile machines kids had developed compulsive, codependent relationships with. (laughs) These were simpler times, when dopamine levels spiked at the sound of the ice cream man, Nintendo Super, Nintendo Super Mario Brothers, and cassette tapes with parental advisory labels. <laughs> In not much more than a decade's time, MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter would come along and change all of that forever. But we were just eight years old then, and focused on one thing and one thing only, handling our business. I'm not exactly sure when our playdates turned from choreographing epic Barbie telenovelas in Claudia's bedroom to hustling like two real-life tween entrepreneurs, but soon we would have our very own first full-service beauty salon up and running in our backyard and an imaginary magazine underway. While our businesses were makeshift at best, The grind was very real. We were busy creating a world that we could not only be a part of, but a world we could run. For our magazine, we sketched high fashion girls with severe eyebrows onto construction paper, 
Then we'd industriously wrap our pages in saran wrap for the glossy feel. <laughs> we built the salon with anything we could find lying around Claudia's house. Old sheets became airy walls between our massage and manicure stations. We even trawled door to door, shamelessly asking neighbors to, for scrap cardboard to build our receptionist desk. Each slab of grease-stained cardboard became an investment in our vision. We may not have been popular, but damn it if we weren't enterprising. Give it up for Jasmine Bell. My niece. San Francisco Bay Area, how's everybody doing today? Ooh, this is beautiful. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, you're excited too, I see. Yeah. Um, as you can tell by the smile, I'm excited and also a little bit nervous, but really excited to be here back in front of our hometown. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Jonathan Singletary, and uh, <laughs> our family is here. We're both from the Bay Area, and so I wanted to get one thing out of the way before we dive in. And that's uh, the elephant in the room, which is, which is me. Elaine, obviously, is an incredibly inspiring woman who has inspired and told stories about and for young women for her, her entire career, from Teen Vogue and beyond. Uh, every conversation partner that she's had to this point has been a woman. And so now I'm here, and I felt like I needed to explain myself. Um, so... Elaine and I, obviously, we have had conversations about this journey, and I've, I've had the privilege of watching everything that she's done over the last five and a half years, although I've known her since we were 12 and 13. Um, and, through, through the <laughs> and through that experience, um, honestly, I've, I've, my eyes have been open to not only the way that she inspires other women, but how she can inspire and teach so much to men as well. And in this era of, of Me Too and the world awakening to the things that uh, this society has done negatively to women, men need to be in that conversation as, as listeners first and then as allies ultimately. So I wanted to... So... His mama raised him right, didn't she? <laughs> yes, shout out to Sheila Singletary in the front row. And, and, and his dad had a little something to do with it, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah pops, to too. Ronald Singletary as well. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just, we just wanted to kind of represent that, that part of, I think, the evolution of that conversation has to involve both of us. And I've learned so much from her grind, from her intention setting, from her vision, from her faith, but also from her, her honesty and her transparency, her vulnerability, which are things that I, I didn't really grow up knowing how to really tap into. So every day I'm learning in that way, and I'm hoping that other men, the young boys, are also inspired by this incredibly powerful book that Elaine Welteroth wrote. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to get started, uh, you know, that story, that anecdote, that nostalgic anecdote that she just told about growing up in the Bay Area, handling her business. What, what business were you really, what, what business were y'all handling? <laughs> At that age, like who, who was doing that at that age? We were hustlers. <laughs> um, okay, you're gonna make me cry already before we even start. How is that even possible? <sighs> um, yeah, so I, you know, it's interesting. I think it, this story builds 
upon what Jasmine um, so articulately introduced, which was this idea that young girls, um, all of us really, are born into the world with a limitless sense of possibility and un unbridled confidence. And then it's the world that starts to chip away at that. And I, you know, as I was writing this book, the thing I struggled most with, which was the, was the title and what to call it. And um, as I was working on the book, I came across a stat that said that young girls' confidence peaks at age nine. And it really struck me. Um, and then when I thought about my own trajectory and I thought about the tra trajectory of women around me, it wasn't so surprising, actually, because... Um, I saw the ways in which I was a boss at nine years old, running my businesses in the backyard with my best friend. And um, I remember being, you know, the way that I played in even in bath time. Like I, when most kids probably had their moms reading them stories, I was imagining, you know, myself as Barbara Walter interviewing like Michael Jackson. And, and we were having these like in-depth heart-to-heart conversations and I was acting out these roles. And, and then I don't know, at some point, um, some of that kind of got chipped away. And, and um, I think as women, we go on this similar journey and this similar arc where if we're lucky, we find ourselves at a point where we realize we've lost some part of ourselves along the way and then we fight back against all of those messages that have told us we're not enough, not smart enough, not beautiful enough, not skinny enough, not woke enough. <laughs> you know, in my case, growing up in, you know, in between two cultures, sometimes I felt not black enough, sometimes I felt not white enough. And I think I wanted my book to be a resounding counter narrative that said enough with all of that. You are enough, you were born enough, and you have everything that you need to do exactly what you were meant to do in this world. And so the goal is to, to, for all of us to reclaim the confidence of who we were when we were nine and killing it and hustling yeah. in the backyard. Yeah, <laughs> I feel it. Um, and you kind of touched on it there, but if there's anything else you want to say about like, how, how did you land on that as the, as the title? Because um, I know we t when we talk about this, or not even how do you land on that as the title, but you know, you said you say like part memoir, part manifesto. Yeah. What is that? What is that side of that side of the manifesto? What is the? Why is it more is more outward than it is the memoir? Well, I just I have a hard time with the term memoir, <laughs> and my brother will attest to this. <laughs> we had a difficult conversation this Christmas when I came home. Luckily, I had already turned in uh, my manuscript. And we found ourselves in the kitchen, and he says to me, kind of cavalierly, dude, dude, why would you write, like, an autobiography at 32? Like, isn't that something old people do? And I'm telling you guys, I am just so glad that I had already turned in my manuscript, because that might have been the very thing to push me over the edge and just throw it all in the garbage, throw it all away. And I was, the best thing I could come up with at the time was... They don't even call them autobiographies anymore. <laughs> and then I thought about it later and I was like, you know, that was the question I was most afraid of. And I don't blame my brother for asking a question that's rather obvious, actually. Um, I should have been prepared for with a better answer. Um, but, you know, I think we do live in a society, a, a patriarchy that that makes us believe that the only stories that are valid are stories from people who are who don't look like me. 
And part of why I'm here, part of why I'm telling this story is resistance against that. And I think that we need more storytellers um, who are women. We need more storytellers of young women of color who've d gone places and, and, and been able to do things that no one who looks like them have because we need more blueprints. We, need, we desperately need more role models. I know I needed more role models of uh, female leaders when I was coming up in my 20s trying to figure out how to climb the ranks and, and to do so with integrity and how to advocate for myself in terms of salary negotiations, how to deal with bad relationships while I'm trying to crawl to the top, climb my way to the top and be successful. And um, so I felt like, you know, while this is, these are my stories, these are universal stories. And these, this, is the, this is the story of anyone who has ever had a dream that was bigger than the city they came from and had to figure out uh, how to make it a reality without a blueprint. This is the story of anyone who knows what it is to be the only one of them in the room. This is the story of anyone who's ever felt... Uh, underestimated, overwhelmed, and still managed to overcome. And um, I think also, you know, I, I don't think about it as a memoir as either because I think it, of it as, in some ways, it's a race book. In some ways, it's a book about identity and, and not just coming of age, but about coming into your power. And, um, it, and you know, in the book, we tackle race and we tackle things that are, sort of hot, bu hot button, controversial, hard to wrangle um, issues that, are, that I think sometimes the best way to, to crack open co hard conversations is through simple storytelling, you know? And, and when you deal with things like representation, um, you know, we have the hashtag representation matters. And sure, we can get behind that. We can retreat re that. But do we really know why? Do we really know why it matters? And so one of the first stories that I tell in the book is um, from a chapter I call White Paper Family um, that kind of breaks down in the most simple sort of th simple sense through the eyes of a three-year-old. Um, and my very first memory was really around this issue of representation in media, the lack of representation in media. Um, and I tell the story about being like basically in my preschool classroom and you know, um, being asked to make a family collage. And uh, all the kids are kind of flipping through these magazines and cutting out people. And I'm like, flipping. And I'm like, no one looks like my family in these, in, in these magazines. Um, and, and in that moment, I realized I was different. And, you know, as you go through life as, as a child, you don't come into the world knowing that you're a woman or that you're female, or that you're black or white. It's the world that tells you those things. And then stereotypes come with that. Labels come with that. And, and I, I certainly realized in that moment, I would, oh, oh, I'm different. And I didn't want to feel like an outsider. So I did what everyone else was doing. I cut out white people. <laughs> and then I came home with my white paper family, and my mom wasn't having any of that. <laughs> And I have, by the way, my book is filled with my mom's one-liners, and the first one is, oh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> so she sat us down at the kitchen table, and she made us redo, she, made, she dragged my brother into it, who had nothing to do with it, you know what I mean? He's like, what do I got to be involved in this? He, so we, she, she pulled out Ebony and Essence magazines, and she made us redo this assignment. 
Um, I got to keep my white dad. Uh, <laughs> Even though it was a little bit of a lie, I had him. I had him decked out in like a in like a business suit with a with a briefcase. And in real life, my dad was a carpenter, and you know. But um, but but he does get cleaned up nice for Sunday for church. Um, but but what's that? <laughs> but he's normally a hippie. He says, um, which is very true. I think he's a hippie. I do. But anyways, we get we digress. This is what happens when you have family in the room. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, anyway, but my mother, you know, made us do the, redo this assignment and, and she made me tape that more realistic depiction of my family on my bedroom wall so that it was the first thing I saw every morning, the last thing I saw every night so that I would know who I am and feel proud of who I am, regardless of whether I could see it in magazines or not. And um, I'm just grateful that I, I had family the, like I did and that, you know, e- no matter what the world may s- have so- told me, um, I, came from, um, I came from love and I, I had strong roots and I had um, a mother and father that always redirected me back to a sense of pride and confidence. But still, even with the best parents, you can't really protect or prevent your, your daughter from going on her own journey and ultimately bumping into herself along the way. And, and things got hard, you know, things got hard. And so I didn't shy away from that stuff in the book um, because I hope in sharing more of the truth um, in this social media age when all we do every day is scroll other people's success stories online and we're only seeing the, ha- the highlight reel, we're only reading the headlines and we're leaving out so much of the success story that actually is the most universal. You know, we're leaving out the stuff that's hard. We're leaving out the salary negotiations. We're leaving out the toxic relationships. We're leaving out the um, imposter syndrome. And I think, I think my, the goal of this book is when women tell the truth, we wake up the truth in other women. Yeah. Um, so in the book, you, you mentioned these uh, so-called relationships with so-called other men. Um, and I guess, um, I, just, I just wanted to know, you know, why, why, why did you feel the need to share those stories so honestly and, uh, and openly? Hmm. Why was that important hmm. to, to you? I'm just wondering, hmm. as a moderator. It's really as, <laughs> as the moderator, I just. It's a really good question, Oprah. Really good question. Ah, is it hot in here? <laughs> One second, let me drink a little. Well, you see, clearly I got it right in the end. <laughs> but it. <laughs> But I took a couple detours along the way. I took the long way home, let's say. Um, you know, I, I, I met Jonathan when I was probably 13 years old in church in South, at South Bay Community Church. And, um, and back then, you know, my head was just filled with pre-feminist Beyonce, you know, era where it was, you know, she was talking about, I want a soldier. <laughs> and... You know, back in those days, nice guys finish last. So while, you know, Jonathan was, he was going to Bellarmine, you know, he was going to this private school and, 
You know, he had this great smile and he was going to be a doctor one day. I was just like, he's going to make someone a really happy wife one day. But as for me and my soldier, I'm going to ride or die for my soldier. So I went a different route and I decided to uh, date and fall in love with um, someone who was more of the bad boy archetype like many of us do. How many, don't leave me out here, ladies. How many, of, how many of us know what I'm talking about? And even though I was more of a goody, I was, I, it, com, compared to him, I was more of a goody two-shoes. I was, you know, a, a 4.0 student. I was a student class president. I actually probably have people in here from my high school who remember. Yes! My corny slogan, which was, don't be lame, vote for Elaine. <laughs> and somehow that lame slogan one, one me that seat. Um, but you know, and it's interesting, like I remember growing up and, and, um, dreaming of one day going to Stanford university. Like that was my dream school. And then I ended up in this relationship and I did the, the, I, I made the one cardinal mistake. The one thing I tell every young girl just never do the thing I tell every parent to never let their daughter do. I ultimately followed that guy to college and, and in my parents' defense, I told them that it was my decision. It had nothing to do with him. He was just like a cherry on top. Um, and I didn't even apply to Stanford. I didn't apply to any UC, and, um, let alone an Ivy League. And, uh, so I, and I don't regret the college I went to. Shout out Sac State. I do not regret that. It's just the, it's, it's the motivation. It's the reason behind how I ended up there that um, I'm, I'm, I'm less proud of. And yet that was the path I needed to take to, to wake up. And it took a while. It took five years, five and a half years before I really woke up. And I'll, I won't spoil, um, you know, the story is in the book. Uh, it gets a little dramatic. <laughs> gets a little messy, as relationships do sometimes, especially when you're young and dramatic. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, I, it went on too long, and it wasn't the healthiest relationship. And um, I came very close to never really making it onto the career path and the path that I believe God had for me. And I, I think that, um, thankfully, I recognized early you know, at the, before the before college ended, I recognized. You know what? Why? I mean, I'm gonna ride, but why do I have to die? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I'm gonna get out this car and go the other direction. And and I call it I call it ride or die syndrome because I do think it's something that we, as a culture, a lot of women we we have. It's like an inborn disease that we've like inherited from our foremothers and. <laughs> It's like we, it takes multiple breakups and breakdowns for, uh, for us to really get this out of our system. But thankfully, um, you know, I, I eventually did get out of that relationship. And, um, and listen, he's a good guy, and he's gone on to be a great husband to someone else. And, and, but the day after I broke up with him, I got in a car accident. And it was sort of, there was a metaphor for me when I, when I say, I feel like I came so close to being pushed off of my path. And I just remember waking up from, you know, opening my eyes after that and, and just thinking, I will, I will never let a man take the wheel 
over my life. I'm in the driver's seat. And, um, and by the way, one of the other many lessons in that relationship was to never stay with any boy who makes you sit in the back seat for anybody other than his mama. And if he does, he's, he ain't the one. Um, but I think there's, there's, there's sort of universal lessons, I think, in, in, in sharing those harder parts, like those like complicated, sort of embarrassing um, experiences, because I think a lot of young girls who may look to me as a role model because of my career and think, Elaine never went through stuff like that. And it's just not true. And you know, I think I don't want to perpetuate myths about success, and I don't want to I think we live in a culture where we only see the finished result. We only see the final product. We never see how you got there. We don't see the process. And you know, you know the what, but you don't know the how or the why. And that's what I wanted to fill this book with, with the hope that some other girl who sees themselves in that story will get out faster. And whether it's a girl or a woman who's my age or even older, I think we all go through similar journeys. And sometimes we just need that nudge. We need that nudge to, to get out and run. <laughs> <laughs> the other direction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you talked a little bit. Go find that nice guy that you left back <laughs> in the dust back there. It's still going to be hard, though. Yeah. Um, so you talk. First of all, I wanted to shout out a couple of things. Who's Newark Memorial? I wanted to shout yeah. out your high school. We got Newark Memorial. Oh it's Elaine's high school in the building. Sac State. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, and I want to talk a little bit South about Bay? South Bay Community Church. Of course, of course. Did I miss anything? Bellarmine? I don't know if anyone's here. No. No one's here from Bellarmine. <laughs> um, I want to talk about transitions. You talked about how your relationship kind of pulled you into a certain place in the Sac State. And then from Sac State, obviously, you, you ended up in New York. Um, but there's an in-between in there. Yeah. And... I know that there's always a lot, there's a lot in those in-betweens. So yeah. talk about that transition from Sac State to New York and then the rest being history there. Yeah, well, I have to shout out someone who I owe my career to, really, who I wouldn't really be on this stage without. And her name, I call her M. Foss, endearingly. Her name is Dr. Michelle Foss Snowden. Where are you at? Where are you at? You're somewhere in here. Um, so luckily, my saving grace, there she is over here, my saving grace at Sac State was this woman who was a who is a professor at Sac State, and she was the first woman, professional woman, that I saw myself in, and I immediately gravitated towards her, and she had the, she seemingly had the answers to all of life's questions that I was trying to sort out, and um, she was there for me in a really pivotal time in my life. Um, which I call the college crisis, which isn't the existential crisis that we all go through maybe a couple times in our life where you're sort of like, why am I here, God? What am I supposed to do? Like, what job do I go after? And I think we don't prepare young people for that existential crisis that will hit. If no one has told you this, it will happen. Jasmine, where are you at? It's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I wish someone told me. I wish someone prepared me, but I was so unprepared. And, uh, you know, you go through your life even, even as an overachiever, as someone who is very ambitious. And, you know, the world kind of sets these marks for you and you reach them. You want to exceed them. And then it's like there are all these prescribed path, all these prescribed steps. And then you get to the end of college 
And it's like, you're on your own, kid. And it can really feel like you are at the edge of a cliff looking down into the abyss and someone is going to push you off. And at the bottom, there's no money and there's bills. <laughs> and like, what to do? And then pile on top of that, you know, having the desire to want a fulfilling career path, one that's filled with passion and purpose. And yet, since we, as long as we can remember, we've been asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if we could possibly know that at five years old and seven years old and 10 years old. And I think what, what happens is sometimes you learn as a child how to give an answer that sounds impressive. And then when people react like they're impressed, then you say, okay, I guess that's what, that's what makes me sound good. So I'm going to keep saying that. <laughs> and you skip the self-exploration. You skip the excavation. And, and you end up on these paths that are unfulfilling and that you're in for the wrong reasons. You know, you want the validation of other people. You want the money and the success, the outward success. But what really matters is the intrinsic success and feeling fulfilled at the end of the day and feeling like you're connected to a larger why. And so I am grateful that I had the opportunity to do internships that were not for me <laughs> because it showed me what I don't want. And I think it's just as important to know what you don't want as it is to find out what you do. Um, and so I remember coming back from my big internship in, in advertising in New York which, by the way, that's a whole other part of the chapter. I encountered for the first time in my life what I call a different kind of white people. Like, I grew up with a, a lot of white people. My best friends are, are, are white people. Hello, hi. Um, and I love, I, we're sisters. So, but what I recognized when I moved to the East Coast for that summer was like, oh, Bay Area white people are different. Like, we all ghost ride the whip, you know? Like, we all kind of come from a similar culture. We subscribe to a similar culture. We kind of speak the same language. Like, no matter what color our skin is, or, you know, our parents are living this similar kind of blue-collar, middle-class existence. We were raised with similar values, hard work, you know, good, good vibes here. Um, and I went there, and I was introduced to an Ivy League snobbery that I just was, it, it, it truly, and I'm talking about it almost in a, in a funny way, but it was not funny how it affected me. It was incredibly intimidating to me. And I felt myself shrinking from the moment that I got into that cult, and, and I was a part of that culture. And I remember being in these rooms and feeling like no one was looking at me. No one would make eye contact with me. And so here I was, you know, coming in as the, I was the senior class president, and, no one, and I, was the, I used to be really confident, and now I'm like in these rooms where I feel like invisible, and I, don't, I lost my voice. And I remember calling my mom so many times that summer and just being like, I feel so lost. I feel like no one is, can even see me, and because no one looks at me, I don't talk, and because I don't talk, I think they think I'm stupid, and because they think I'm stupid, I think, I think I'm dumb. Like, I think I'm dumb. And, and it was this self-perpetuating cycle that we could spend our whole lives in that downward spiral if we're in the wrong environments. And I remember on the last day of that internship, a girl named Lily, and I didn't even change her name in the book, I just left it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Other people, you know, like first love, just call them first love. You know, we all have one universal, you know, even, even good old uh, future husband, future ex-husband, just left it generic. But some folks, I just put their name in there. Um, Lily looks at me at the very last day of that internship and she says, Elaine, you know what? One day when I'm the president of my company, I would totally hire you. <laughs> and I was like, in, you know, in my Issa Rae and like split screen, like, like if, if I was like my real self, I'd have been like, how do you know I'm not going to be the one hiring you? But instead, I just sort of absorbed it. And it felt like a blow. Like, we were both interns at the time. That was inappropriate. But so that whole experience was important for me because it made me recognize that if I'm going to spend the majority of my life at work, I have to love it. And I do not want to walk into work every day feeling like a smaller version of myself. And so <laughs> I came back to Sac State with a, with a mission of figuring out why I'm here, what my passion is, what my purpose is. And, and unfortunately, I had to do it in 30 days because when I got back, I thought I had a whole year left. But turns out, I was accidentally graduating early. <laughs> and I learned, it's all in the book, and I learned that I actually only had one semester left. So this sent me into panic mode and drove me right into M. Foss's office. And um, I, re I will never forget this fateful plane ride. She invited me to come to Chicago um, for a, a, a conference, an academic conference. And she invited her other mentee, which I was very jealous of the time. I was like, you have another mentee? <laughs> I thought this was just me and you. I thought, uh, you're cheating on me. Got it. And so then we went on a, a, a date, the three of us. And... I remember it, on that plane ride, we all shared one thing that we wanted more than anything. The thing that we were, we wanted so badly we couldn't even say it out loud. Um, and they forced me to tell them what I wanted. And at that time, I finally had realized that what I really wanted to do was to be a magazine editor. But, you know coming from Newark and not knowing anyone in that industry, let alone in New York, it felt like a dream that was just too big to claim. And it would sound silly if I even said it out loud. And M. Foss and Amanda forced it out of me. And eventually, like, it, the words came out of my mouth. And as soon as they did, I wanted to collect them up and put them back in. I was like, oh, it sounds so stupid. And they were on the other end of that moment. And they, they affirmed me. And they said, Duh! They're like, of course you should be a magazine editor. This makes so much sense. You have to go for this, Elaine. You have to go for this. And I'm telling you, I was so prepared for them to say, oh, that's nice. That's nice. What, what else? Like, what is, you know, another thing. But, but, but instead, M. Foss was like, if fear wasn't an option, if money wasn't an object, what is the thing? What is the thing that you would want to do? And... She gave me permission to believe that I could be whatever I wanted. And it sounds cliche, but I'm telling you, in, the, in that moment, if I had a different kind of woman on the other end, 
I may never have gone after that dream. And it changed my life. It changed my life. And um, God, I'm so emotional. This is like so weird. <laughs> no, I have been. I can't with him. You're fired. <laughs> I'm replacing you with Jasmine. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Um, <laughs> but seriously, I just think about those moments that that, you know, could have gone a different way. And, and, and I'm just so grateful that I had women in my life that like MFOS who pointed me in the right direction. And, um, the rest was, the rest was history. After that, I, I, I was sort of laser focused on making this dream happen. And I ended up finding another black woman named Harriet Cole, who, when I found this woman, you guys, there was no, I became a stalker. (laughs) I, was laser focused on finding this, on getting in front of this woman. I called her assistant every freaking day. I wrote her, I had, this is before Instagram when you could like DM, just slide into the DMs of your role models. Um, I had to snail mail her. I had to find her assistant's phone number on the Google. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. Did you want to ask me that question? I feel like I, I am just really going here. No, this is, this you is wanna, about you. Did you want to moderate me or? No. I'm just here. You're just here? I'm just hanging out. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to let you do your thing. Okay. No, actually, well, that, that would be the, the next question to ask. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, there's this woman in the book named so Harriet funny. Cole. I had uh, no idea. Could you talk about her, please, <laughs> Elaine, and how important she was to your career trajectory? You know, you got to make the men feel needed, you know? Um... <laughs> He's killing it. He's killing it. But okay, so if you, if I must talk about this, um, please do. Please yeah, share. Good idea. Um, so Harriet Cole, <laughs> when I was in the midst of like really trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to make this happen? Uh, I came across this story in Ebony Magazine, uh, and something told me. And this was after months of prayer and petition for guidance, for direction, for clarity. Um, and I, I will never forget this day either because nothing has ever happened like this before or since, but this is the moment where God became real to me. I was raised in the church, but you know, until you have a personal relationship and a personal experience with God, you can kind of feel like, I don't, I mean, people are catching the Holy Spirit. I was like, should I be feeling something? (laughs) And like, or like when people talk about like, God told me, and it's like, how did it sound though? Like... (laughs) Like, did you feel it? Was it here? You know, so this was the first time in my life where I got it. And I, it was almost audible. I heard like, look her up. Like I felt so singularly drawn to this woman. And again, nothing before. I wish I could tell you then it started happening all the time. And no, I've been waiting to hear something since, but... Um, but, but in that moment I, I was obedient and I Googled this woman, I found her bio and it read like the ultimate career blueprint for me. 
I think before that, I found myself feeling like, you know, you know, like the world forces you to check a box and to fit into certain labels and titles. And none of those titles felt like they could possibly be all encompassing. How could they, how, you know, I knew I liked storytelling. I knew I was, you know, I had an eye for detail. I loved visuals. I, I liked interviewing people, but like how do you put all of it into one career path? And this woman had figured it out. And she was like a mini Oprah. She was like, if I can just reach her, I just want to be her. And so I proceeded to stalk her. <laughs> you can read the whole story in the book, but um, luckily I was able to finally connect with her over the phone. And I remember that 15 minute conversation extended to 45 minutes. And at the end of it, I said, if there's ever an opportunity to work with you, please keep me in mind. And if I never hear from you again, know that you've already changed my life. And it was true. It was a good line, actually, thinking back. <laughs> Somebody in here should use that. Um, not on me though, cause I now know, isn't, but, but she, so, so we hung up and I was like, I, I will never hear from her again. And it's all good because I am setting my A through Z plan. I am getting to New York to work at a magazine, ideally essence by any means necessary by June 1st. And so I moved home after college graduation, which is the scariest thing for any ambitious person to do. But I, I had a, I had a long-term vision in mind and I came home. And it was humbling. I got two jobs, one as a receptionist right here in San Francisco, um, and the other one was a, was a waitressing job at NOLA, which was across the street from my dream college that I never went to. So here I am, graduated from Sac State, and now I'm getting drinks and, and, um, and uh, jambalaya for Stanford students. And I was a terrible waitress, but I saved every penny and I applied to every internship I could. And I knew that no matter what, I'm gonna, by June 1st, I'm moving to New York. And I saved $10,000. And thank God, I ended up getting my number one internship, which was at Essence. And I'm, so I'm 30 days away from going to Essence in New York. I'm like, Mama, I've made it. And then I get a call from Harriet. This is five months after that fateful phone call that we had where I thought she'd never remember me again. And... She basically said to me that she was looking for a new in assistant and thought of me and said she had a, she had a um, shoot in California and wondered if I would accept $250 for the day to assist her. And if things went well, there could be a job waiting for me in New York. And I was like, I will pay you $350 <laughs> for this opportunity. And um, I have no idea what a production assistant is, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I jumped in my car. My mom didn't let me go alone. She packed up her stuff and catfish to go in the car. And, and we drove down to L.A. and um, stayed with Shay. I don't know if she's here, my god sister. We slept, the three of us slept on an air mattress, three grown women in an air mattress in a studio apartment in L.A., all to help me make my, my dream come true. And that next morning, I drove down to Malibu and rolled up to set, and she did not tell me that it was a cover shoot with Serena Williams. So I was like living my black Lauren Conrad dream. <laughs> and I was just like, I have made it. And the, there's a moment from that day that kind of underscores this relationship that Harriet and I were able to develop. I, I, I was 
found myself on set behind the monitor next to her, looking at the picture, you know, looking at Serena, who's like basking in the glow of the sun in a swimsuit. And I'm trying to figure out like how to impress Harriet without overstepping. You know, you have to do that, that little dance. And so I, I bravely <laughs> suggest to Harriet that I think Serena would look great in the blue swimsuit. And now, knowing what I know now, that's insane. Like, an intern on the first day on a cover shoot belongs in a corner, <laughs> seen, not heard, and, um, and yet, in that moment, Harriet, I thought, ignored me. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, I've ruined this. I've completely ruined this. Yep, I'm fired, for sure. And instead, she, she just, she paused, and then she said, Serena, we'll try you in the blue swimsuit next. And I was like, <laughs> and what was so beautiful about that moment is that this was the first example of what black female leadership looked like. She created space for my voice to count. And, and it taught me that, it taught me what you do with power you use your power to empower. Mm. And she didn't have to do that. And a lot of bosses wouldn't have. Um, and I'd like to, to, full circle moment is that that blue suit ended up on the cover of the magazine. And at the end of that day, she offered me a job to work with her at Ebony Magazine. And while it wasn't the sexy option, um, compared to Essence Magazine, for those of you in the room who do not know the difference. <laughs> I know they're both black, but there's a difference. <laughs> um, Ebony is more like your auntie and uncle, kind of dusty. It's kind of like, it's like at the dentist's office. And the other one's like the fashion and beauty Bible for black girls. And, um, and yet there was a, this, this, when Harriet was tr trying to get me to come work with her, it was a God thing. It didn't matter if it didn't sound sexy to other people. I knew that I knew that I knew that it was going to change my life to work with this woman. And so I called back my dream internship and I told them I'm going to work for your competitor. Hmm. And they were like, good luck. <laughs> and at the end, I will say the second, Harriet promised me a lot and I just went on her word. And when I got there on that first day, I looked around, and I was like, this is not the Double Wears Prada. <laughs> I was like, where is the fashion closet? <laughs> it was definitely low budget. There, was not a lot of re there were not a lot of resources. And I remember my first assignment was to clean the beauty closet. And it was like actually a storage, a, an abandoned storage closet with like manila folders and like relaxer kits that were up to my knees. <laughs> And I just had to roll up my sleeves and, 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 and do it and trust that the same God that led me here was going to get me through this and, and that there was more for me. And the beauty of it is that two weeks into that internship, we were shooting Michelle Obama before the historic election that year. And um, at the end of that summer when all those fancy kids across the street at Time Inc. were, you know, they were working in a much sexier environment than I was. But, but at the end of that summer, it was the first, it was the recession. It was the beginning of the recession, 2008 summer. 
it was the first time that not a single intern was offered a job. So if I had chased the sexy, I would have ended up in the very unsexy employment, unemployment line back home. And instead, I got a job. I got to stay because at Ebony, there were fewer people. And so if I could be there and add value and say yes to everything and wear multiple hats, then I could earn my keep. And, and also their HR department wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> so... So actually, my internship did end technically, but I just kept coming in. <laughs> and then, like, somehow, I just kept getting paid. So then, like, I was supposed to end August 31st, and then, like, September, October, November rolls around. And, like, by the new year, I went in and I was like, you know, I really need a raise. <laughs> For a job I didn't freaking technically have. <laughs> and, and, and somehow that worked out. That was the most millennial thing I've ever done, and I don't recommend it. Um, but, but all of those lessons that I learned at Ebony really, really, really formed the foundation for my career. And I think I tell all of this stuff because, again, we only see the headlines. Elaine becomes the youngest editor-in-chief in Kanye Nast history. And oh, overnight, Teen Vogue becomes woke. Hmm. And it just didn't go down that way. And I wouldn't have been there if it weren't for Ebony. And I wouldn't have been at Ebony if it weren't for Harriet. And it wouldn't have been a Harriet if it weren't for M. Foss. And if it weren't for an M. Foss, it would have been my mom and my Aunt Janet, who was the first, first depiction of what success looked like to me. And I remember part of why I, was a, I had that salon in the backyard was because of my Aunt Janet's salon. Mm. My Aunt Janet owned her own salon for black women that I spent every Saturday, many Saturdays in sweeping up hair and making up stories about the big lives these black women were leading and wanting and seeing myself in them um, and, and wanting to be like my Aunt Janet. Yeah. Yeah. What was the name of that salon? Well... Her salon, her, the first salon that she worked at was called Black Heritage with H-A-I-R. I got my hair back. And, and then the one that she owned was called The Place to Be, to, the number <laughs> yeah. two, B. Oh, and I forgot to say, it all comes back to my Aunt Janet. That day, that fateful shoot with Serena Williams, I go on to set, I believe there, there are omens. If, we're, if our eyes are open, we can see them. We can see the signs. We can see the good omens. And when I got to set... The first face that I saw was Marcia, Ham Marcia Hamilton's, who was Serena Williams' hairstylist, who got her start at my Aunt Janet's salon in San Jose. And she did my hair for prom both years. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Wow. It's amazing. These stories, there are so many more of these stories in the book, too. And we're going to have to move on to Q&A uh, for more of this, though, you have to read through this book. I mean, I'm so inspired by her hustle, her determination, her relentlessness. Um, it's all incredibly inspiring. And the other big thing taken away from this is, like, find your tribe. Support each other. Show love to each other. Um, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a young man, that's, that's, that's one big thing, too, I took from that. It's like everywhere, every stage of this, she's had... The Solid Six, her best friends from growing up. Shout out to the Solid Six. <laughs> she's, had, she's had a tribe. She's had mentors. She's had people she's pulled into her life in order to bounce ideas off of, to, to be honest and open and vulnerable with. And that's, again, something that I think we can all take. And like when people come to you with all of that, you got to share it. So we're going to go on to the Q&A. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure some of you guys already have some questions ruminating, but uh, I think the way but that we're going to... We have a little bit of a fun way of doing Q&A. Oh. Remember? Moderator. Fun way of doing the Q&A? So I got this part. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, so the day before, the, the Sunday before my book came out, which is now oh, I don't, a week ago, we did a book blessing in Brooklyn because we were raised in church and writing this book, putting this book into the world feels a lot like having a baby, even though I haven't had a baby, so I probably shouldn't say that. Um, but, you know, in church, when you have a baby, you do a blessing. And um, so we brought together our family and friends and we prayed over this, this project. Um, and the intention of this, of this book is not just, it's not just to sell the book, it's not just to tell my story, but it's really to start conversations that matter um, it's a tool that puts me in, in conversation with my community and all of you. And one of the things that we did at this book blessing um, is something that I would love to do with all of you, if you're game. So um, as you all walked in, you should have gotten a card. Um, and the card brings the spirit of this book to life. Um, the, we all know the title is more than enough. The subtitle is claiming space for who you are, no matter what they say. And so the card says, um, we're going to we'll do a little role play here. You don't put you on the spot real fast. Sure. So it goes like this. I. Jonathan. Singletary. Singletary. M. Claiming space for. My artistry. No matter what. My doubt or fears might say. Might say. Yeah. Give this brother a little round of applause. So as we move into Q&A, uh, we just invite you to uh, take a quick moment of silence to reflect on what you are hoping to claim space for in your own life. And when you think about the no matter what they may say, the they could be internal they. It could be external. It could be the patriarchy, it could be your boss, it could be your mama, <laughs> it could be fear, it could be doubt. So just get creative about what the they is that is keeping you back, holding you back from claiming that space. And so we'll take just 60 seconds quickly. We need like game show music right now. Yeah. And, and then when, you, when we move into Q&A, just stand up, read your card, um, as your introduction to the room, and then go ahead and ask your question. Are you guys cool with that? Yeah. Are you guys cool with that? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, as soon as you have it done, if you have a question, you can, uh, I think the staff here have microphones for you guys to yeah, ask you your can, questions. You can line from. up in the aisles when you're ready, if you have your question. Yeah, we already ready. Is hands, there anyone up got... there who can? Who's yeah, got we... the microphones? Right, so we're going to go first here. Let's do it. So someone's ready. This Young lady, hi. This young lady is ready to go. So as everyone's still thinking, we'll go ahead and start. Oh, sorry. Oh, you got one? All right, we got one. First question. Greetings, fam. Um, Can I come a little closer? Hold on, stretching. Um, What's up? I, Andre Singleton, am claiming space for my ancestors, no matter what anyone may say, Ashe. Um, Can I hold it? Congratulations. Um, one thing, as a friend, I'm really happy for you. I couldn't make it to Brooklyn, but I'm here in SF. Um, one thing that I am grateful for is you talking about God and faith. Um, 
so boldly as a young person and opening your book talking about ancestors. I would just love it if you could just talk a little bit more about how instrumental um, your specific faith is, what you gained from you know, your church community, from your lovers, but from from you, like you spoke a little bit about that inner core, and I know we've had some great conversations, but I want to know, what would you take to others about how instrumental your specific faith has been to leading you to where you are now, and especially in the hardships, like the times that it's not cute. So, thank you. What's up, Andre? There are a lot of not cute times. Um, hey, Andre. Thank you for asking the question. Um, and representing for the men in here. Um, oh, my faith is everything. And um, I think the thing that I that resonated with me most as I was an adult coming to understand what God is for me um, was sort of this, this, I think about it as a dance uh, between vision and faith, strive and flow. Like you have to do your part and then you have to be willing to surrender to what God has for you. And I do believe that there's a divine order to all of our, li all of our lives. And I believe all of us have, th there's work, and then there's our life's work. And I think only God can define what the life's work really is, on the calling on your life. And I think your job is to clear out the noise so that you can hear it and be obedient to it. And, you know, South Bay Church, um, there's, a, there's something that we say in the beginning of every um, sermon. I forget what, it's called, what you call it, but there's a part where it says, um, let me be brought low for thee, let me be brought high for thee. And I remember every time we had to say the low part, I was like, mm, do we have to, do we, ha how low though? Like, you know, I'm really trying, I want to be, I want to be great. I want extraordinary. Um, but I think the, the, that practice is really about surrendering to whatever that higher calling is for your life, even if it comes with moments that will humble you. Um, and I think it is those moments that humble you, that remind you of who's in charge and who's you belong to and who's really running the show. And um, yeah, I feel like uh, I wouldn't... I, I, I wouldn't be, I, I probably would still, I, who knows where I would be. I'd probably still be sleeping in my parents' study if I hadn't um, really done the work to hear that call when it came through. And, um, and I never looked back. I never looked back. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of the ancestors part, I think one thing that we didn't really get to in the conversation, but that I talk a lot about in the book is what it means to be first. Um, and Shonda Rhimes has this acronym, First Only Different, F-O-D. And I really relate to that. And I think probably so many of us relate to that idea of being the first or being the only one like you in the room or just being different. And, and the responsibility that comes with that and the opportunity that comes with that. And it's not always easy to use your seat to speak on behalf of the communities that have never had a voice at that particular table. It's, it takes bravery and courage. And there have been lots of fights that I had to put up alone. Um, there have been lots of times where I felt isolated. And um, even, even when I was at my highest point, what, or what looked like the highest point for me, sometimes those were the, also the lowest points. 
And the thing that I would try to remind myself of whenever I was scared, whenever I felt alone, whenever I felt like I wasn't as strong as I wish I could be, I would think about my ancestors and I would conjure them up and, and ask them to come with me into the room and, and help me do the work that I can't do by myself. And I think, I think luckily we live also in, a, in an age where we also have social media, where we have a tribe out there that, we rep that, represent, that we're representing for in those spaces. And, and a lot of times I have felt um, held up by, by the people outside of the walls that I work in and that have always reminded me of my why, but I, but, I do, but, I, but I think the thing that I've carried in my spirit, regardless of what anyone would say, regardless of if there was an applause waiting for me or not, the thing that I carry with me is the, is the sense of purpose, the, the, the God that's led me into these rooms and the ancestors that I'm representing for when I'm in there. Wow. So we got time for a couple quick questions and quick answers, and I'll allow... Uh, <laughs> Back here on your right. I don't know where the. Oh, okay. you should help answer questions. No, I don't, I don't have time for that. All right. Hi, Elaine. Next time. Thanks for coming. I was really excited when I heard you'd be here. Um, so you told us earlier about Lily and when you turned to her and absorbed her threat to hire you when she got older, just took it all in. And at some point, we all have this moment where we're aware that we've developed the courage to do something that we never had the courage to do before. Mm -hmm. I assume that if Lily were facing you today, you would have a totally different answer. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about a moment when you realized you finally found your voice to respond to something you found offensive? And what did you say to course correct? Ooh, what a good question. I needed that one. Wait, but you skipped over answering the card. I was hoping we wouldn't have to get to that. Oh, okay, fine. Um, I thought she was going to say, I'm Lily. <laughs> okay, we got to help me answer this question. Think of a time. He knows all my stories, the ones that I've written and all the ones that didn't make it into the book. So I'm going to call on him to help me answer this. What's the time? Amandala? The shoot? Okay. Okay. He's been there through all my highs and my lows, by the way. And there have been many, many nights where I've come home broken. And all y'all saw were the boomerangs on Instagrams. <laughs> and made it look really good, but it was not always easy. And I'm so grateful that I have a partner in this man. Um, but thank you for reminding me of that one point. So I, I do, there is one, I'm going to give you the short version and the rest of it's in the book. Um, but there was a moment where um, I remember it was the first time that I advocated for um, more inclusivity behind the scenes. And it was hard. It was scary. And um, it was contentious. And it always is going to be those things when you're, when, when, you're, when you're pushing for change. Like, we're raised as women to make people comfortable and not to make people uncomfortable. But when you are a pushing for change, agitation is uncomfortable. And I remember um, feeling the necessity to push my team to think critically about who we're hiring to do 
uh, hair on this particular cover story where we were highlighting a young woman named Amanda uh, Amanda Stenberg, who had just rose to fame because of her Tumblr, viral Tumblr uh, video that was called Don't Cash Crop My Cornrows. And it was about cultural appropriation. And as the beauty director on staff, I brought an Angela Davis hair reference, which was a big kind of freedom fro. Um, And yet when I looked at the call sheet, there was a white hairstylist that was booked and a black hairstylist hadn't even been considered. And I just thought we cannot exalt this activist and then disrespect her message in, in this way. We really need to think critically about the system that we're, uh, that we're part of. And, you know, typically in fashion, not to get too into the weeds, but there is usually a white male photographer who gets to dictate the hair and makeup team, and he likes to work with his friends, and no one questions it. And so that's why you have the same handful of makeup and hair people that create all the images you see coming out of Vogue. And people of color who know how to do an Afro better than anybody (laughs) never get the opportunity, even when now things are starting to change and you're seeing more people of color on the cover of magazines, yet the storytellers and the the image makers are still being marginalized and being locked out. And so that particular, that was a fight. And, and I won. We won. And it felt good to be on that set that day and to see not one, not two, not three, but four curly afros on set, one of which was mine. <laughs> All right, we've got time for one more question. I know that... That's crazy. I'm claiming space for one more question after that. We have a question up here on the no balcony. No matter what they may say. The balcony, we got a question up here on the balcony. All right. All right. Here you go. Thanks. Oops. Hi, Elaine. My name Hi. is Meg Williams. I am claiming space for my fashion blog, no matter what my fears may say. All right. And I wanted to know, um, how did you learn to embrace risk-taking? Um, I found you on Instagram maybe three months ago, and I made a, like, I guess, like a pledge to myself that I was going to meet you within a year, so I'm happy to meet you now. <laughs> <laughs> Way to manifest it. <laughs> risk-taking. I'm going to let Jonathan answer this very quickly for me. Go ahead. How, how did I learn that? How do you embrace risk-taking? You want me to answer it for you? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, oh, oh, man, yeah. I, I mean, she touched on some of the major points, like this last transition last year, coming out of Teen Vogue into The Abyss, where everyone had associated her with this new title. It was only a year and a half old or so. Um, it was hard. It was scary. She was, she, was there, she was tied to this to the past in some ways, but having the, again, she dug into her faith, um, prayer, these conversations with her tribe, and reminding herself that there, there's more, that God has placed so much in her that has yet to be birthed into the world. Um, so she went back into that same place and sought that, sought that message and, that, and reinforced that there, was, there, there is more. And even though what was behind you is, was, was comfortable or safe or at least gave you the accolades that brought you to where you are, if God has a, a bigger vision for you, you got to chase it. You, gotta, you have to chase it with everything in you. Um, and she says that your life is... A series of dreams realized this is an Elaine Welteroth quote, and and that's real. You can you can achieve a certain dream and then and then dream another one up, dream a bigger one up, a different one up, go go uh, go higher and higher. And I watched her do that, and 
it was uh, incredible to see. So that's that. Um, we got to get one more. I'm hearing from uh, real fast. Okay, I, I, can we get? Can we get? Uh, she had to. She she had her hand up. She was really there first. We can hear. We, we'll repeat the question. We can hear. We can. He's coming. He's coming. I got it. Thank you. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. I am. I'm Victoria Lee Ross, and I am claiming space for my creative soul, no matter what my cold intellect may say. And I learned those terms from acting school this past year. Cold intellect is basically shutting down or the judgment that comes with your voice and the things that try to shut your voice and creativity down. But my question is, I wrote it down, because I knew that I'd be nervous. Um, <laughs> the Lord was like, Tori, write this down. Because Okay. It has to do with... Um, There's the that voice. <laughs> right. You know, woke me up in the middle of the night. And I was like, okay. And he was like, write the question down. I was like, okay. Um, it has to do with the situation that occurred while you were working at Teen Vogue and you made the decision to speak up for yourself concerning your article on braids and correct what was being said about you on social media rather than listen to leadership and not say anything. Mm. What was it that made you say no to your bosses and what made you say this is a risk that I'm willing to take and post the op-ed response to your haters? Ooh, you read the book. <laughs> Somebody pre-ordered right here. <laughs> First of all, give her a round of applause for sharing that. Yeah. That's, that takes courage. Yeah, that card hit me too. Yeah, I that feel, hit me too. I feel all that cold intellect. Cold Ooh. intellect. I like it. Um, what was it that made me push back? Um, sometimes you have to follow your gut. And in that particular instance that was the first time that I had stuck my neck out to do work that was as we say for the culture and it was unfortunately completely taken out of context um it was a braid story that was really a story about how sometimes afrocentric beauty is a form of activism because when you find yourself in systems that were not built for you, sometimes just your authenticity is a form of activism. And just being you is the radical act, especially when we live in a world that for generations has told us that your natural hair is not sophisticated enough, not professional enough for the workplace. And so there was a deeper meaning behind this braid story, and I felt so proud of, of it. And then when it went out into the, the interwebs, some... One took a picture of the model with the braids with a flash on and posted it on Twitter and said, cultural appropriation at its finest. Teen Vogue strikes again. They assumed that the model was white, wearing braids. They assumed that the writer was a, black, was a white person and never even read the story. And then that tweet got picked up. And then it ended up on the UK Daily Mail with a headline that said, Teen, Teen Vogue writes anti-black story. And in this age of clickbait media, where we only read headlines and journalists, digital journalists are writing stories based on what happens on Twitter without ever even reading the source material, um, it was crushing to me because this was the time I had finally, finally earned a little bit of respect internally and was able to pitch a story that was outside of the realm of what we would normally do. And um, this backlash was just crushing. And I felt like my team was sort of like, see? <laughs> this is why we don't go there. 
And, and, and like the feedback that I got from, you know, corporate was just let it die down, don't say anything. And I was just like, you don't understand. I can't go down like this. It was your, it's your tribe. This is my community. And I can't let them think that I don't get this. And it actually turned into, um, and I, I have to give a lot of credit to my colleague who does not look like me. And he was a white ally internally. And he encouraged me to write the op-ed to address this issue. And I think some, that's important for us to remember that sometimes your allies will not look like you. And... Um, and he encouraged me to do this op-ed. And so then I put it out there. I addressed the controversy and I shared my intention for the story. I apologized for the part that got taken out of context and, and for my own blind spot, which was ultimately, you know, if you're writing a story about Afrocentric hair in a, white, in a magazine like Vogue and you don't have anyone who is dark-skinned, then it's painful for some folks. And I, and with the issue of colorism, it was a blind spot for me. And I learned, and I promised to do better the next time. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful that, I think this is a, important for all of us, you know, we live in cancellation culture where when you do something wrong, you say something wrong, you're canceled. And it, it puts us all in this place where we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing that even when we need to say something, we remain silent. Mm. And I think, um, I think the important thing was that, you know what? Yes, I made a mistake. And also, they got me twisted as well. <laughs> and you know what? We can have a conversation. We can have courageous conversations around it. We can grow from it. And we can move forward and do better the next time. Wow. And that's exactly what I did. That's what we did collectively as a team. And two weeks later was when that Teen Vogue was held up as, a, as like, you know, the only media company celebrating diversity in fashion because we had the cover come out with three black models um, on the cover and I was the cover story editor and then I was the token black girl who was saving the industry all of a sudden. <laughs> they, all for, they forgot all about what, what happened two weeks before that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think the message is to just keep going. You might not always get it right. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive other people um, and, and grow and learn and do better. So... Yeah, great question. Great question. So um, okay. before we wrap up, okay. Inforum has a tradition where they ask all the speakers the following question. Okay. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Impeach Trump. Woo! And on that note, thank you all so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for reading the book. Thank you for supporting Elaine. You all have been amazing. You've been an amazing crowd. And I just want to say, can everybody give a round of applause to Jonathan? <laughs>